Welcome to the Light Shine Church Sermon Podcast. I'm organizing pastor Rob Douglas, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. All right, well, good morning, friends. I want to begin by telling you a little story. About a month ago, my son's teacher told me that they were needing parents to volunteer and serve as judges in the upcoming speech and debate tournament. I had heard this request before, actually many times before, but I always deleted the emails because I didn't think I'd be a very good judge. I just assumed that this was more for people like the Ron Robinsons and (laughs) Jacobsons. They would be the good judges. You're shaking your head, but I, I had a hard time coming, you know, dealing with that in my mind. But this time I said yes, because uh, she seemed really desperate. She kept sending out the emails and she was saying that maybe kids weren't going to be able to participate. And I was starting to feel sorry for her. So I took a deep breath and took comfort in the fact that she said there would be a training for all the new judges. I attended the online training and one of the things obviously that they focused on was what exactly we were to be listening for. She said, you are not listening for whose position you personally agree with the most. She also said, you're not listening for the kids who are the easiest to listen to. She said, you are listening for how well they back up their argument. You're listening for a clearly stated position, persuasive arguments and facts that defend their position. And then of course, why their position is superior to their opponents. Well, I bring all this up because in the time of Jesus, persuasive speech was very different. And Jesus was a teacher who taught in ways that were particular to his time not to ours. And so in order to understand what in the world he's trying to say, it's helpful to consider the differences between his world and ours, between his way of speaking and ours. Our culture is heir to the Greek tradition. We value abstract reasoning, verbal prose. Well, Jesus lived in a storytelling world. If I was a judge at a speech and debate tournament in his day, I would be listening for who is telling the best story, whose story had the best metaphors, the best word pictures, whose story perhaps had the best surprise ending, maybe with a twist. Jesus, we know, was a master storyteller. I'm sure he would have won all of his speech and debate tournaments. His use of word pictures and metaphors, we are told, was brilliant by first century standards and was one of the reasons he drew such large crowds. But we obviously live in such a time and place so very different um, and so far removed from his world that we miss a lot of what his original audience would have immediately understood. And so the biblical scholars help us out quite a bit here. So as I read the story this morning, I'm going to kind of read it line by line and share some of what I've learned with you in hopes of helping us try to hear what Jesus was trying to say. So first, let's pray. 
Oh God, we come to the scripture, we come to these ancient stories in hopes of hearing you alive today speaking into our lives. And so Lord, we pray that you'd help us hear whatever it is that you want each one of us to hear. But we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Luke chapter 16. This is 19 through 31. This is Jesus telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the parable. It goes like this. There once was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Purple clothing was among the most expensive clothing in the first century. Purple dye, interestingly enough, was extracted from snails and it was popular because purple didn't fade with the Mediterranean sun. It actually got brighter over time. But it was very expensive. So if you wore purple, you were definitely among the upper class. At the rich man's gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, and he was covered with sores. So this name Lazarus means God is my helper. It wasn't necessarily Jesus' favorite name. He's trying to tell his audience that Lazarus was a man who looked to God for help, and he was covered with sores. He had a skin disease, which sadly wasn't uncommon in the first century among the poor. Lazarus desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here's my favorite thing that I've learned. In the first century, when you sat down to have a meal, there was no fork, no knife, no spoon, not even a napkin. So if it was your job to set the table, there clearly wasn't much to do. I know some of you maybe wish that you lived in this time. In the home of a wealthy person, get this, your napkin was a chunk of bread that sat next to your plate. When your fingers got messy and sticky, as they obviously would, because you were eating with your fingers, you would then grab your chunk of bread, wipe your fingers on it, and then chuck that, chunk, that, that chunk of bread on to the floor. That's how it was done. And in this story, it's perhaps this bread that the rich man threw from his table that Lazarus was longing for. Well, the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Lazarus dies, ascends to heaven. In ancient times, it was believed that of all the places you could be in heaven, the absolute best place, the place everyone wanted to be, was right next to Abraham. And this is where Lazarus goes when he dies. The rich man also died and he was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. In ancient times, it was believed by Jews and by the early Christians that in the afterlife, heaven and hell were in sight of one another. So imagine that if you're in heaven, you can look and see those suffering in hell. 
Seems like it might put a damper on your enjoyment of heaven, but that's beside the point. In hell, you could also look over and see those enjoying the bliss of heaven. This was probably more the point. The suffering in hell was even worse because you could see where you were not. And that's what we have here in this story. Jesus says the rich man, he was in torment, but it's even worse because you can see how good it is for Lazarus up in heaven. The grass was definitely greener over there. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in this flame. Well, back on earth, the rich man, he lives in a world that had this clear hierarchy, right? He was at the top. Lazarus was at the bottom. People like Lazarus lived to serve him. But what the rich man doesn't understand is that this order doesn't exist in the afterlife. There is now, in fact, a reversal. And so Abraham corrects him. He says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In the ancient world, it was believed that those in hell could actually repent and if you're truly sorry, after a year or so, Abraham would come and get you and bring you over to heaven. But in this story, Abraham says, that's not how it works. There's a great chasm and it's fixed. There is no crossing over. And then the rich man said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warm them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses, and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man is persistent, he's desperate, he's pleading with Abraham. But Abraham says, your family, they have everything they need. They have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. And then abruptly the parable is over. Well, this is not a warm and fuzzy teaching, that's for sure. Especially for us, right? People living in America on the world stage still, we are among the wealthiest people who have ever lived. None of us in this country will ever die from a lack of access to clean water. And most of us will never go hungry other than when we're fasting or on a diet. No matter how much we have or don't have in our bank accounts, by world standards, we are well off. There's a lot to unpack in this parable, but certainly one of the points Jesus is making is that God has a particular compassion for the poor. And the teachings of Moses and the prophets call us all to have that same compassion for one another and to do our part to help. And of course, also to address the reasons why people are suffering in the first place, to engage in the work 
of justice. Abraham seems to be telling the rich man that it's, on his, it's, his, it's his fault that he ended up in hell. He had the capacity to help Lazarus and he didn't do it. I wonder though, maybe it wasn't so much that he intentionally chose not to help, but that he was just wrapped up in his own life, his own concerns, and he didn't really see Lazarus. Maybe he overlooked Lazarus, seeing him as only a part of the landscape, not as a human being. Well, as I reflected on the passage this week, it got me asking a lot of questions, not really answers, but just questions. So I thought I would share some of them with you. One question. If the rich man was blind and deaf to what was right in front of him, are there people that maybe we are blind and deaf to? Maybe people that are right in front of us. I recently heard a seminary professor say that we in the church, we don't typically have a compassion problem. We tend to be compassionate folks. If we see a need and we can do something about it, we generally respond. That's not the issue. We tend to more likely have a vision problem. We just don't always see and hear the Lazaruses that are right among us. When I heard her say this, I thought, yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Just reflecting on this past year, 2020, obviously it was an extraordinarily difficult year, but there was a real bright side and that was the racial reckoning. People of color have been suffering in, right in front of white people for a very long time, but most of us, definitely myself, have been a bit blind and deaf. For much of my life, I, I just haven't known how bad things are. I haven't been paying attention to all of the black men who have been and continue to be killed by the police. I haven't known much about the racial injustice in our prisons. I haven't known much about voter suppression. And honestly, I thought we had a bad history of racism, but I thought it was mostly in the past. But we as a country, we're starting to really hear the pain and see the struggle that is far from over. And we're waking up to things like white privilege and white supremacy, and we're learning to see the pervasiveness of racism that is still everywhere. Just as Lazarus was overlooked and ignored by the rich man, so the suffering of many Americans has been overlooked and ignored for a very long time. Well, I'm struck by this image of the rich man and Lazarus living so close to each other. And I can't help but wonder if there are people who are close to us, maybe even people we live with, who would love for us to work on seeing and hearing them a bit more. It's probably also not a bad idea to spend some time thinking about the regret that that rich man had at the end of his life. Which leads my, me to my next question. If we think about our own lives from the end, will we have any regrets? Will we regret certain things that we did or not? And if so, if we think of some things, is there anything we can do today about it? This parable proclaims God's great loved love for the marginalized, people like Lazarus. And it also proclaims a warning to people of privilege, a caution for us to not, look, not overlook each other 
and to remember that we're made to help each other out. Well, a few days ago, I attended a virtual meeting of Southern California Presbyterian church leaders and others who were involved in justice ministries addressing immigration, refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers. We live next to one of the busiest international borders in the world with people coming into the country through Central America and all over the world, coming in at TJ, excuse me, at the TJ San Diego border crossing from, from all over the world, not just Central America. That's what I meant to say. Well, on this call, um, I was struck by how many Presbyterian individuals and churches in Southern California are hosting asylum seekers. Asylum seekers, people who are coming to this country with tremendous grief, obviously, having left some situation, and tremendous hope, longing for a better life. They're at the gate of our nation, but unlike this man who was at the gate of the rich man in the story, there are people creating space in their homes and churches to welcome them in and help them rebuild their lives. And it was very moving to me to hear a little bit about this. Now, of course, this isn't what God calls all of us to do, but certainly all of us are in some way called to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. Years ago, I heard someone say, spiritually mature Christians allow themselves to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. Spiritually mature Christians allow themselves to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. I heard this years ago and I've continued to mull it over because I find it very challenging. And I bring it up because the the in this parable this morning, it's the rich man who didn't allow himself to be inconvenienced, who then later really regretted it. And so the last question I want to leave us with is simply, what does it look like for us, for you, in your own life, in your own situation, in this time in your life? What does it look like to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel? Who are the people in your life that God is calling you to pay more attention to, to perhaps love in a sacrificial way? Maybe it's someone close to you, or maybe there is a cause or a group of people that particularly move you. If this pandemic has taught us anything, I hope it's taught us that we are hardwired for human connection with one another, that we're made to live together and to help each other out. Well, that's it. In his masterful first century way, Jesus tells another really good story. This is the rich man and Lazarus. So let's continue listening, listening to what God would have us hear and know and to pray that we'll find ourselves somewhere in these ancient narratives and inviting the larger narrative of God's love for us, God's love for the whole world to be the story that shapes our lives. This week, we're recalling that over a half a million Americans have died just in this past year due to COVID-19. These continue to be very difficult times. So let's hold on to our faith. Let's hold on to the story 
of God's deep, everlasting, always and forever love for us and for the whole world for all time. This is the one and only story to hold on to. May it be so. Amen.